We come to the end of our first week of the weekday coronavirus edition of This Week in the CLE podcast. We took our weekly news podcast and made it five days a week to cover all the questions and ideas you're tossing our way via text message. Keep those ideas coming. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, along with editors Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and Chris Wernowski. And I'm betting you're all glad that it's Friday. Yes, and sunny. Oh, is it Friday? (laughs) (laughs) What year is this? Exactly. Well, we can't get to the end of Friday unless we begin and end this podcast. So let's begin. How has Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's stay-at-home order changed and how long does it last? Every day at two, the governor has a briefing to update us on what's going on with the coronavirus. Some days we don't get much news and some days, like yesterday, we get a lot. We're all stuck working from home through April, as we expected. The governor and health director Amy Acton extended that order, but they also changed it a bit. Jane Cahoon, you edit a lot of these stories. Let's go through the changes one by one. First, the retail stores. Well, apparently they're trying to address complaints about stores being overcrowded. So now retail businesses are going to have to establish a number of people allowed to be in the business at one time. They're not dictating what that number is because of the various sizes of these places. They are doing that. And then they, if you're queuing up outside of a store, you have to be six feet apart. Okay, so I'm a store. I want to make money, and I make money by having people in the store, and I get to set my own capacity. I mean, they're they're trusting them to do the right thing, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I you know, Costco's not going to set a limit of ten people, and I I don't know. I I just it'll be you know, this has led to a lot of spite and malice reports by people saying this store is misbehaving, this store is misbehaving. I can't wait to see the barrage of messages we get about people <laughs> to trying to pinpoint what the capacity should be. Okay, next, if I leave the state or I come in from another state, I'm considered dangerous now. Well, I guess in a sense. If if you're a traveler coming into Ohio, you're going to have to self quarantine for fourteen days. Although there are exceptions because there are people who regularly cross the border to go to work. And if they're essential workers, they're going to be allowed to continue to do that. Okay. Laura Johnston, I could hear you groaning from across town on this next one. Swimming pools can't open. Summer camps are closed. Campgrounds too. But if this order only goes to May 1st, why are they ordering summer stuff closed? That's a really good question, Chris. I asked the same one yesterday. All I can figure is Governor DeWine is prepping us for summer. As you know, he's been very big at dropping hints on the future all along, and I don't think he wants us to be surprised when this continues. This follows the theme, though, that you jumped on from a day earlier, that the virus could kill summer. I'm not really ready to buy that yet, though. I mean, viruses have a long history of going on the wane in the summertime. Some projections show this one doing that. If If the virus vanishes by June then summer could be summer. People might have that residual fear of crowds. They might not want to go to the pool. But, you know, it seems like we could be okay. Otherwise, no July fireworks, no baseball games. I just, it just seemed like this was a bit premature, even by DeWine standards. This was a long set of projections. I agree. I'd like to point out that I believe the chlorine in the swimming pool will keep us healthy, but I'm not a scientist. I find this pretty depressing. In case this isn't 100% clear by now, I am a total extrovert, and I think for a lot of us, summer has been this fantasy that's getting us through these groundhog spring days. 
I hope at the very least that summer will start late and we can see all our friends and families again at barbecues and on camping trips. One more from DeWine Thursday. Jane, landscapers are okay. Yes, they are. There was some initial confusion about this after the Lieutenant Governor John Houston at Thursday's briefing said, oh, we know there's some elderly people and they might not be able to mow their own lawns. So you can have one person come over and do this. And we were like, really? And we we checked back with his office and they clarified that you could have a larger crew. They just have to keep distant from one another. Well, what was interesting about that is that was one of the big questions that kept coming back. Can can landscapers work? Can landscapers work? Are they an essential business? The the definition of essential has been a, a fascinating part of this whole coronavirus crisis. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. So do we have an answer to the question on whether we should wear masks? It's kind of astounding how much the mask situation in America has changed in just one week. We've gone from universal advice not to wear them because they don't help to almost universal advice that you should wear them if you want. Yesterday, a neighboring state made it official. Then Ohio Governor Mike DeWine weighed in with an endorsement and the White House apparently is going to do so soon. Let's start with the neighboring state. Laura Johnston, what do we know? Well, at a news conference on Thursday, the Michigan chief medical executive recommended that all Michiganders strongly consider wearing masks in regular life, not the N95 respirators or surgical masks, but the homemade cloth kind. And of course, Michigan's been slammed. They started seeing cases at about the same moment we did, but they have a thousand or 10,000 cases to our 2,900. They also have 417 deaths to our 81. So maybe there's just more desperation there. Jane Cahoon, DeWine did make a statement about masks yesterday. What did he say? The governor said that it's fine for retail workers to wear homemade masks to protect themselves and others. Apparently, he had received texts and calls from people concerned about their loved ones who were in essential retail jobs. He encouraged employers to allow their workers to wear them. He did have like a plastic bag he showed off of the masks in it. Like, <laughs> right. I'm surprised Fran is Fran making them. I, I feel like she should, she would be. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, and I'm sure they're very attractive. The odd thing is we're getting reports from hospitals that nurses and others who want to wear masks in the hospitals are being prohibited from doing so unless they deal with COVID-19 patients and they're really upset about it. I don't know when this virus is all said and done, I think we need to have a reckoning on the mask issue Uh, We have to address whether we were lied to on the front end by all these public health officials. The quotes are so dramatic when you go back. I did this yesterday. You know, our first reference to this was January 28th when in our one of our stories, we had health officials saying, don't wear them. You don't need them. They don't work. And it never made sense to us, but they kept saying it. And now it's all appears it was all BS because they didn't want us to go buy the masks that medical people needed. Well, all along, public health officials and doctors told our reporters, and we asked the questions, that regular people didn't need to wear them. They gave us all sorts of reasoning. Well, like, if you don't wear it properly, it doesn't help, which now seems completely baffling, since, of course, something is always better than nothing. The only defense I can come up with is that there was no reason for us to wear masks in January, since no one was going around spewing the disease. But now that it's here... Well, actually, they might have been. Well, that's true. We don't know that. But 
now that it is here and you can spread it without showing symptoms, and we know that pretty definitively, the official advice seems incredibly dishonest. So let's talk about how people can get them. We we know that nobody should try to buy the N95 masks that doctors and nurses need. The advice that's coming out now is about home-sewn cloth masks, and people are putting things on the internet about how to make them, how to make them without sewing. In in our area, we have a lot of people who can sew and who are making masks, and we have people who want the masks. Is anybody bringing them together? Nope. Um, unfortunately, not yet. Reporter Mary Kilpatrick called a bunch of hospitals and nonprofits, but so far, no one's willing to take up the cause. What's really funny is that the Cleveland Clinic says it's collecting them for the community, but the hospital currently has no plans on how to disperse them. I have a text message thing I do where I send out the questions we're asking in our now remote newsroom. And the wonderful people who subscribe send in all sorts of tremendous ideas and suggestions. This morning's message is about this. So maybe people will help us solve this problem. Yes. And you can text to Chris to get on the text message account. If you want to get on the from the newsroom account, the number is 216-868-4802. And if you want on the coronavirus alert account, which has more than 11,000 subscribers, you can text 216-279-7784. Let's end this mass discussion on a high note. Jane, Andrew Tobias wrote a delightful story about how Battelle is sterilizing masks. Battelle made big news a week ago with its new technology to sterilize hundreds of thousands of masks a week uh, or tens of thousands. And DeWine was pushing the FDA to approve it. So there were a lot of headlines. Andrew did a piece on how it works. So how does it work? Well, these they have these devices. They, they look like shipping containers. And each one of them can clean up to 20,000 masks a day. And four of them can run off of a common generator. So they've got this capacity to do 80,000 masks every day. Inside each container, they have two chambers. And the first one is is an airlock where where the air is sealed off from the outside. And then the, these technicians carry in bags of the contaminated masks in there first. And then the inner chamber, they have um, they they load them onto these racks, the masks, and then they pump in like hydrogen vaporized hydrogen peroxide. To, it's an antiseptic chemical for a certain amount of time until they're sanitized. And then the technician is it gets sprayed with alcohol on their on their way out so they're decontaminated. And then about two and a half hours later they they suck out the air from the chamber and then the technicians go back inside and and get the masks and repackage them and send them back out. From the first I heard of this process, I wonder how they could keep track of how many times they had cleaned tens of thousands of masks because after 20 times they're they fall apart and you got to get rid of them somebody thought maybe it was a barcode somebody else thought the hospitals would keep track andrew got the answer and it was decidedly low tech <laughs> yeah they mark them with a sharpie <laughs> with, so it's hash marks once you get the 20 hash marks you, you toss the mask you're listening to this week in the cle does ohio state university think the citizens of ohio are stupid That's pretty much what their infectious disease department told us Thursday when they explained why they keep refusing to provide the specific data they are using to predict that Ohio hospitals will be overrun by coronavirus patients. The University of Washington, like OSU, has done modeling that shows we're going to be okay, 
But unlike OSU, the University of Washington shared its data. We keep asking for the OSU data. And yesterday, Jane Cahoon, they said again, not yet. Well, they said they're going to release the data next week. And the director of their Infectious Disease Institute said they haven't released it yet because it's complex and because of the potential impact it could have on the public response. And Chris, just to get under your skin, I'll I'll read you the quote. It should (laughs) not be viewed as withholding information. It's really respecting the fact that if you release it prematurely, it could lead to responses that are actually detrimental. Ours is a balance of pushing this as rapidly as we can by having a high degree of confidence in the conclusion. This is like the most bogus thing public officials can say. (laughs) We don't want to release it because we're worried what you will do with knowledge. The problem with this, of course, is that Ohio Health Director Amy Acton has turned this state upside down with stay-at-home orders based on that OSU projection. And, you know, it does appear that everything Acton has done is working. So I'm not questioning what Acton is doing. We, We seem to be in much better shape than a lot of other states. But the people do deserve to know what the decision to turn our lives upside down is based on. Does anybody here have an argument you want to make against me? Yes, actually, I do. Uh, this okay, is go ahead, Chris Wernowski. I think that if you have competing data sets that where one shows a, this might not be as bad as we think it is, or it might be leveling off, and that information is incorrect, I, I think if that information becomes public, the concern is that people are just going to assume it's time to get back to our normal lives. And if you're working with data like this in real time, things change. You know, we had a story the other day that pointed out that, you know, there's a lot of variables that that go into creating these data sets that are are unknowns. And one of the most unpredictable one of them is human behavior and social and whether or not we're social distancing properly. And that's almost impossible to predict. So my guess is, and, and, and I can't speak for Amy Acton or anybody, you know, involved in the research of this, but any hint of, of good news, you know, and this is probably why they're being careful about saying we haven't hit the peak and we haven't curved and the numbers are going down. I, they continue to stress like, look, this is, we're still in a critical stage and we haven't hit our surge. And I think that anything that can be interpreted as good news is going to force people to say, okay, time to go back out to the swimming pool, time to go to the, you know, I, I just feel like you're basically arguing though, that people are are stupid. Actually, the fallacy of that argument is they have the bad news. We already have the good news. The university of Washington has already said we're going to be okay. The Ohio state's the one saying it's going to be Armageddon. But, but what you're, what you just said that that's kind of like the way Russia and China deal with its citizens. You're basically, no, listen to me. You're saying, we know what's good for you. We don't trust you to do the right thing with the information. This is the same thing that we've been talking about over and over again in regard to masks. We, you know, the public officials kept saying, don't use them, don't use them. They won't help you, which was a lie. They, what they really should have said is, folks, please don't buy a 95 masks because the doctors need them, make your own. But they didn't trust us. And you're arguing here that that's okay. I was going to say, comrade, that, um, (laughs) (laughs) that, that, Honestly, like what I what I what I mean by that is that, you know, they may not have confidence in their data to the degree that they can say, like, this is going to level off. You know, I 
you know, I, I, you know, I mean, you know, as well as anybody that, you know, transparency is a big deal for me. And, you know, especially in a state that, you know, got off on the wrong foot as far as transparency with the rest of this. So I think there is a balance between, you know, I mean, they're spinning a lot of plates here. Okay. So this is an issue with a lot of different aspects of the disease, um, I guess, response from the state. And we've gotten an email we talked about yesterday among editors that people want to know where the deaths are. They want to know if they're in nursing homes, if they're people with pre-existing conditions, because they they think that information would be helpful for them to protect their families. And that's something we're not getting from the state either. And I realize it's hard to collect all of this information, but people do have a right to know. And I think the idea that, well, we don't know everything yet, we don't have it perfect, is not a great excuse to not give us what they do have. And look, there's accountability here too. Acton and, and DeWine are doing things based on that data. So they didn't wait for the data to be refined until next week. They've got us jumping. They're the ones making the decisions. I think they owe us an explanation. And look, a little bit of a soapbox here. Every day, DeWine has his briefing and it's turned so clubby with all the reporters lining up to thank him for providing information. And every time they do, I think, what kind of BS is this? It's his job to share that information. It's the reporter's job to demand the answers. And I feel like some days, Jane, that our team is the only one doing that. The, you know, the statehouse reporters are not part of the wine with the wine club. <laughs> I mean, and this isn't this isn't saying that the wine and Acton have done a bad job. Anything but I think they've done a tremendous job. But we have unanswered questions here and we're supposed to ask those questions and get the answers. I, I really wish, Jane, that our team could just ask all the questions at the briefing. <laughs> well, I'm sure that they would be very appreciative if they could get to hog the microphone and keep firing away their questions because Often when we reach out, you know, we'll get one shot at a question and then we'll reach out later to try to get some answers on different things, for instance, from the health department. And often the answers we get are are really not satisfactory. But, you know, it's funny. We've received thank yous for some of the questions we've raised and also some angry messages. Everybody's watching at home. It's like a public viewing, you know, of of how we do our job sometimes. And he's made it all homespun with his videos, which is great because it soothes people. But the reporters asking the questions, there's a lot of stuff we don't have. We need to get it. Anyway, enough soapbox. It's this week in the CLE. What will my hospital be if I'm treated for the coronavirus? Up to now, we've talked largely about whether insurance will pay for testing or whether insurance will charge me out-of-network rates if I go to a hospital that's outside my network. But this is a big question. What will the treatment cost you if you get really sick? Jane Cahoon, you worked with Jerry B. Pelzer on a story that answered that question. Well, there's not a lot of data, but we do know some things. It, It really depends on how long a patient stays in the hospital and what kind of treatment they get. There was a study by the Peterson-Kaiser Family Foundation Health System Tracker that said that based on the cost of pneumonia treatment, COVID-19 patients who have major complications could see costs of more than $20,000. And, you know, without, without the complications, it could be about half that. But, of course, what you actually pay is, is going to depend on whether you have private insurance, you know, what your levels of deductibles and co-pays are, although some insurance companies have voluntarily pledged to cover 
all inpatient treatment for the virus, but it's also going to vary if you have like Medicaid, Medicare, or or no health insurance at all. It, it really varies. So up to now, all the talk about hospitals has been about how they're about to get slammed and they're the front line and they're the heroes. And for the doctors and nurses working this thing, that's true. They will be the heroes. But the hospitals themselves, in reading Jeremy's story, looks like they could rake in a whole lot of money off this thing. Well, let me push push back on that idea. I mean, we've we've had hospitals across the country who are losing money and having to furlough workers because they're no longer doing the routine patient visits, the the preventive care and the elective surgeries. And at the same time, they're spending all kinds of money on this buildup, you know, buying equipment and arranging for extra beds and and hotel rooms for their workers and um depending on whether the modeling is correct they, they you know they might be over preparing but that's better than under preparing so but what i'm trying to say is that's all costly for them so i'm not i'm not ready to say they're going to rake it in okay good point it's this week in the cle is ohio doing any better with unemployment Thursday saw the most staggering unemployment claim numbers in modern history. And when the unemployment stats come out for March, experts predict we will be at 10% nationwide. We'll have gone from 3.5% to 10% at the snap of our fingers. Chris Ranowski, take us through the Ohio and national numbers and put them in a little perspective. As of right now, the state, as of yesterday, I guess, the state reported over 270,000 initial unemployment claims uh, in the week ending of March 28th. And on a national level, it's anywhere between, I, I've seen figures as high as, as, as 15 million people that they're reporting about 11 million. So it depends on what economist you, you listen to about it. Um, and it's bad. It's, it is, it will be the worst drop in, in employment since the Great Depression. And that puts us wow. in a really bad place as a country. I'm betting if we went back and counted, we'd find that the subject that has been discussed by Lieutenant Governor John Houston, more than any other in the daily briefings, has been unemployment. How many times has he told people that when they see the spinning wheel on the computer screen, don't hit the back button because it puts you in the back of the line? But the reason he keeps talking about it, as as Evan McDonald has reported, Chris, because the system keeps crashing. We mm-hmm. hear from a lot of people about this. I'm going to read a note that I put. I put out an open-ended question the other day on my social media that just asked, who's anxious? and I got a note from a friend who said, every day is worse. I had to stop trying with unemployment because panic attacks every time I opened the site were really hindering my ability to cope with anything else. And Andrew Tobias told me today that he saw someone on Twitter said that they've tried 112 or 17 times to get through on the website, through the phone, and they just keep getting slapped down, that there's, there's, that it's unresponsive, that it's, um, you know, that they're having a difficult time getting through. And, you know, one of the things that they won't tell us is how many people are getting rejected for unemployment. And well, actually, that's what we want to talk about next. Uh, Jane, your statehouse team tried to get those stats this week. And what did you learn? (laughs) Not then. The Ohio Department of Job and Family Services says they haven't calculated the rejection rate because their system is, they just need all the bandwidth they can get. And pulling down that data is just going to slow down the claim system. Chris, let me give, let, let's go back to the computer system, though. I mean, if you're, you're hearing, we're hearing that people are on there hundreds of times. You know, in the early days of this, 
which was what two weeks ago. <laughs> um, I mean, they, they they were legitimately slammed. They weren't. Re- you know, I mean, you would think that when you're planning to shut down the state and close down businesses, that you would know that unemployment claims are coming. But they didn't have a lot of time. They keep claiming they're updating the site and expanding it and trying to do things, but. From what we're hearing from people, there really is no improvement, not on the phone, not on the computer. I mean, people just cannot get through. I honestly believe that it's I'm not going to say that that's by design, because obviously they're taking this very serious and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with it. You know, again, this is one of those situations where, you know, they're trying to troubleshoot a significant problem in real time. But I think, you know, when we get some distance from this whole mess that we're in right now, you know, there's going to be a lot written about how, you know, decades of ignoring, you know, the the issue of unemployment and making it difficult for people to get unemployment, even in regular times, that a lot of states have been doing that. And and so we were woefully unprepared for something as catastrophic as this, as, as a lot of states are. But, you know, we're going to I think we're going to start saying, you know, I mean, there's a, a political story that came out today that basically says that you know, legislative efforts to deny people unemployment during, you know, a normal period in American history, you know, have have made it even more impossible for people to get it in an emergency. So, you know, I think there's going to be some 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 reckoning that comes out of this when it comes to, you know, how we how we deal with this in regular times. All right. We'll have to see. It's this week in the CLE. What is going on with Ohio nursing homes and the coronavirus? We've had two breaking stories this week about Northeast Ohio breakouts of coronavirus in nursing homes. They are not the easiest stories to report. Chris Ranowski, you worked with reporter Adam Faris, whose aggressive reporting smoked out the Parma nursing home story. It was uh, a clinic that Adam taught and forcing the hand of people who don't want to be forthcoming. So what's the story in Parma? So Manor Care is a nursing home. It's a part of a large national conglomerate of nursing home uh, hospice and and palliative care centers. And he got a tip early, early uh, the other day, and he started to sort of work on it. And one of the difficulties in navigating a story like this is that uh, nursing homes are incredibly private because of, of federal privacy regulations. And on top of that, private chains really have no obligation to really report anything to the public about anything. You know, if it was a county owned nursing home, you would have some leverage and say, look, you know, you responsible to the taxpayers, you should tell us this information. And so, you know, he, he spent a lot of time going back and forth between first like the a union head representing first responders who went to that home and were in contact with some of the residents and and so his initial story was basically saying that there might be eight people in that home that were the union head was notified about and he that the the home said here are the eight people that your people came in contact with and when he pressed them to say are there more they they refused to tell him even you know i mean this is a a firefighter, you know, these are firefighters. These are people who are out there all the time. And so we reported that story. And then a little later in the day, the the nursing home kind of came clean and said that, you know, they had X amount of patients. They had one in quarantine, but, you know, we're going to start seeing these little vectors in, in communities. I mean, just today, you know, well, and, and it was a, I mean, it was a hell of a job. I mean, he, 
they they were resisting him at at first, but then he smoked it out. Across town, reporter Robin Goist was on the story of another nursing home breakout in Aurora. What's happening there, Chris? Well, I, I mean, it's basically the same story. You know, it's it's we're seeing this virus that affects old people. It's going to get into these homes and it's going to start affecting both the staff and and the patients. So we're in for, I think, a lot of bad news coming out of this because it's it's going to hit our older residents really hard. And, and as it gets into these homes, it's going to be harder and harder to contain. It's odd that, that there's there's no way to really keep it out, but we'll have to watch how it develops in the in April. But, this week in the CLE. As you work from home, what steps do you take to separate your workday from your home life? Chris Winowski, you brought this up Thursday explaining what you do, and I was so intrigued that I sent it out to people who get our From the Newsroom text messages. The subscribers sent in so many thoughtful comments that we put them into a story. They thought your idea was great. So first, Chris, what do you do to emphatically end your workday, even though I have to say, I don't think you really ever do end your workday. <laughs> no, I really don't. But but it does, like, it. I mean, there are things that I do. So um, at five o'clock before our meeting, my dog starts to bother me about eating. So I know it's almost dinner time for the dog. So I, <laughs> I feed him and then I get on the phone with you guys and then we talk about our day. And then when it's really quote unquote over, I, I take my laptop and the charger and I put it in my briefcase and I close it. And usually about a half hour later, I open the briefcase and get out and start <laughs> another story. But, but it is, you know, <laughs> when, when it, it does, it, 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 I don't know what it does for me mentally, but like, I, I, there's just like a feeling of, okay, like I'm, I, I am, I put it away and now I can go on and, and, you know, go outside and, and enjoy the sunlight away from every other human being on earth. So, okay. So, so Laura Johnson and Chris, what were some of the good ideas that people sent in in response to this? Oh, people have had some fabulous ideas. One said they, they missed their commute. So, cause it was kind of where they got in their headspace to go to work or come home. So they take a walk around their block as their commute at the beginning or the end of the day. Some people said they uh, have a home office that they physically leave and shut the door and they don't go back in. And other people said that they, their wife or their husband um, basically ends their day. And so they come back together and they make dinner. So people kind of have these little rituals that they're working on. Yeah. It's, it's, I think one of the things that we do, you know, I cook every night usually. And, and so that is also kind of a, a, a way to, to just mentally just put work aside for a little bit and focus on doing something else. I, I think that's a lot of people are going to need to do those kind of things in order to maintain their, you know, sense of, of people took your idea and, and we're saying, boy, I have to run with this. Lauren Jane, do you do anything special to end your work day? Although I feel kind of bad here because I harass you all evening. So I don't know that you ever end your work days. This whole thing is making me feel like a really bad manager. Well, you really gave us an opening there, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Can I uh, refuse to comment? Are you sure? Uh, Laura, what do you do? I, I have the office, but I, I find that at six o'clock, I am going to make dinner with my kids because they have to eat at some point. And then I end up going back into the office. And then when I finish, you know, my newsletter for the next day and, and the podcast prep, then I'm really, I'm done. I'm not going back into that office. I can't complain too much because we are all working incredibly hard and it, it's important that people get the public information. So at least I feel good about 
the work that we're doing. And it, you know, I feel like even we're if it goes on till midnight, well, <laughs> it's not going till midnight. I go to bed okay. <laughs> by ten o'clock. Well, I hope the people listening can put away their work, and I hope we all do for the weekend at least. It's supposed to be fifty and dry. You're listening to this week in the CLE. As we get ready to sign off, I want to say thanks to Chris, Lauren, Jane, and the rest of the editors and reporters at Cleveland.com for pushing so hard these last weeks, as Laura mentioned. This community is feeling isolated because, well, we're all isolated and people are relying on Cleveland.com more than ever to keep them connected. We see it every day and how often they visit our platforms and send us messages. Everyone here takes pretty seriously the mission of getting the information out there. And I'm grateful to be working with all of you and them. Thanks to you, our audience, for listening to this experiment. We had no idea when we expanded to every weekday publication of This Week in the CLE, whether you'd come with us. Early indications are that you have. One note, we will not have a bonus podcast Saturday with our lingering questions, because after five days of podcasting, we've asked most of those questions. We'll be back with another episode on Monday. 